welcome back to Scared to Death, episode two. My name is Peter. I am a graduate student here at James Madison University from Fairfax, Virginia, and today I am here with Lindsay. Hi, my name is Lindsay. I'm a senior psychology major, and I have a minor in family studies. I'm from Algon City, Maryland, and I just joined the lab this semester, so I'm really excited to start getting involved um, today. Our guest is Dr. Patrick Merle. He's a director of the School of Communications at Florida State University. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yes, thanks for having me on your episode. That's exciting. Uh, my name is Patrick Merle. Yes, I'm a French native from a small town in the southeast of France. And I worked first as a journalist in France and internationally before crossing to another side and joining the world of academics, where I started in the Midwest for a community college, then went to get my PhD at Texas Tech University, and then was recruited by a Florida State University where I'm now an associate professor and director of the school for a year and a couple of months now. Awesome. So um, just our first question today, uh, what was, so you mentioned just all the different um, schools you attended between here in the U.S. and France. And we just wanted to ask, what was uh, your education experience like? Like, were there any differences that you found between the American system and European system? Yeah, that's a Great question. And I, I could have mentioned for the purpose of your question, too, that I received one of my master's degree from Ireland. So I had a chance to see the education system in Ireland, in France, in the US, and even did some summer school in, in England, uh, Oxford and Cambridge when I was a teenager. So I've had a chance of being exposed to multiple education system and Obviously, the, the obvious answer is there's not a one perfect system. There are systems that I think fits better all of us. With a strong bias, I'm very much in favor of the critical thinking that exists in Europe. I think there is a higher propensity to engage in that type of discussion, but I, I think it's nurtured already in the culture what we potentially idealistically call the cafe culture, specifically in France, where you taught at a younger age that you can engage in those discussions, whether it's at the dinner table or uh, through meetings that you would have uh, in the classroom or outside of the classroom between classes. Uh, so I think I'm, I'm, I prefer that uh, the standardized testing that exists and this this desire to have everything quantified in the US is highly problematic in my mind. And I think when you come to college and you don't, you, you can have classes with people who are not within your same grade is also something that I think is detrimental. I, I never understood why is it that as a senior, you can be in a class with somebody who's a freshman or a junior. It doesn't make any sense. And, and in Europe, at least in France specifically, you have classes with people who are at the same level than you are. So if you're a senior, you have a class with only seniors. You're not going to have classes with juniors. They're not allowed to take those classes, whether it's high school or college. 
And I think that's helpful for maturity and level of discussion. So I think that the other thing that I think is very strong in the, in the French system, comparatively speaking, is this uh, baccalaureate, the exam that we have when we finish high school or to graduate high school. And, and the one that is very culturally been communicated throughout the world, I think, is the philosophy exam. All of us, I think it's something that ties the French together to a certain extent, even if we don't say so, is that we always remember our philosophy question. The philosophy exam is a four-hour exam that you have to take. You receive a topic, whether it's um, a question and or a text, and you have four hours without notes to comment. And every year is the first exam of the entire baccalaureate. Baccalaureate is a series of, of questions from multiple disciplines. And the philosophy one always kicks kicks off the festival if you if we can call it that way and my question was can you predict the unpredictable which i thought was a fantastic question and um, so i enjoyed working on that for four hours um, but uh, yeah it's there are a lot of i mean obviously it's a longer discussion of what are the differences between the french or the european and american education system but i think the american education system gets better starting at the master's level and PhD level, below that, it's 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 a bar. Sounds like you're saying how like uh, not much critical thinking. I mean, I remember in high school, I didn't ever had to do a philosophy kind of class that you were describing. So I could definitely see that as you were mentioning it. I think there are some schools, obviously, it's always hard to generalize for a nation of more than 300 million people, but mm -hmm. I think there are some schools, whether they're private or have a different approach that will allow to have the international baccalaureate or some higher AP classes, I think, as they're called. But as a whole, you know, I mean, I find that problematic that some high school students when they graduate don't really know where to place some capitals of other world if they know the capital of those other countries um, they don't know the geopolitical differences between issues and, and so from a democratic standpoint of students or so people who are going to vote on issues that matter uh, I find that to be highly yeah, highly problematic. I mean, it's, it can't sustain itself if if people can't understand the complexity of the issues. And, and, and that's obviously not a simple answer that it's just the education system. It's a lot of socializations from the parents who are from the same system as well and don't always have the same level of education but and level of accessibility of to education also. But um, yeah, it's... It's um, it's interesting for sure. Awesome, thank you. Um, our next question is regarding how your professional career has been. Uh, you covered the two thousand four Athens Olympics. What was that like? Yeah, it's interesting that you chose that. Um, 
compared to other things that I would have covered. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I always wanted to be a, a journalist ever since I was a child. And um, it may have been because I'm, I get completely anxious and paranoid if I don't have an answer to a question. <laughs> and I think it's almost like an internal level of anxiety that if I don't get an answer fast, I have an anxiety level that kicks in really hard. And so maybe my desire to be a journalist is a biological response. But um, yeah, it's uh, the 2004 Olympics. I was based in Athens prior to the Olympics to cover the preparation of those games. And um, every week we had to produce a little documentary, a little show, if you call it, where we would document exactly what was happening in the country. Those were the first games after the 2001 terrorist attacks. They were the games back to the country that created the modern games. So there were a lot of things that made sense to cover from the Greek capital. And um, yeah, it was a fantastic experience to do that because it's uh, when you're a journalist, you always strive to go for events that will allow your work to be visible and meaningful. So being in Athens, and then Athens is obviously one of those cities in, in Greek with the Greek culture that is very rewarding from an individual perspective to be there and understand a bit more what's happening. And I'm a runner myself, so one of the very symbolical experiences was to go to the actual city a small town called Maratonas, the city of Marathon, mm. where historically speaking, that's where um, the, the the actual discipline started. So that was very wonderful to see uh, having run a few marathons myself. It was quite unique to to pinpoint and be where Historically speaking, people believe that's where it started. So great, great experience from a professional standpoint and also individual perspective as well. Thank you for sharing about that. Um, so moving on a little bit from uh, your work history, I just wanted to ask, um, so what got you interested in terror management theory? So... I actually never knew the theory until I um, was in my PhD program at Texas Tech. And a friend of mine who had just transferred from our psychology PhD degree to our mass communication degree said to me, hey, do you want to work on the, on the paper with me with a theory? And I said, yeah, sure. I'm always willing to collaborate, I think. Even if I'm clueless about what the topic may be, I'm, I'm always happy to be. I think it's the, the level of curiosity that comes from being a journalist. And so I asked, what's, the, what's our leading theory? I was a very good student. They said, what's the leading theory? Without a theory, we can't have a paper. <laughs> I was a very de dedicated PhD student. <laughs> and she said, terror management theory. I said, oh, wow, I've never heard of that. What is that? And so she explained it to me and I said, well, that's fantastic. That fits perfectly with, with the news and everything that is going on in this crazy world. Death is 
all around the media coverage. So surely there there should be. And she says, well, there's not a lot of studies that do media and terror management theory. And so, okay, well, let's try what we can do. And I found that call uh, for an edited book that your um, professor, lovely professor, uh, Lindsay was um, heading. And so we submitted the paper there for that. It was uh, terror management and civic engagement and tried to make sense of what was going on. It was our first take. And I actually enjoyed working on the paper. The, the, the paper um, went fairly well for our first study on, on that framework and, and those variables. And we were very grateful that it was sufficiently good to be accepted for publication. But um, yeah, that was my first encounter with the theory uh, at the time. I'd, I'd never heard of it. The romantic answer could have been, well, I'm a French one. I'm a French citizen and native. So this this level of existentialism is ingrained in me, but that's <laughs> that's not how it happened. <laughs> It happened just through a friend who, uh, who joined our PhD program and, and who had been exposed to it from our psychology degree. So uh, since you said you worked on the paper a little bit, how did you and um, Lindsay first end up meeting? Well, so far, we've never had a chance to meet in person. I think both geographical limitations and um, obviously the craziness of this world recently has prevented us from doing that but we our first obviously exchanges were through that submission process when she was editing that that book and and then I followed up with her um, throughout the years since then where um, either it was to ask for advice on some things or to propose collaborations or exchange ideas. And, uh, you know, I, I, I thought that I really enjoyed how she was able to really break through the stereotype of the problematic editor of a book and make the experience very in, enjoyable, even for a, a PhD student. And following her um, through well, what she does on social media and through the lab and everything, uh, I, I thought that she would be a good person to work with, or at least to be um, a colleague to, because uh, I, I like her approach a lot. And, and so that's how we gradually um, came closer, if you will. But um, yeah, the, the first point of contact was through that submission and and since then just nurturing or the relationship, if you will. So um, kind of going on now, like a little more serious, I guess, like instead of just a little get to know you questions, have you ever felt death anxiety or you mentioned the French suffer from existentialism. Uh, have you ever suffered from existential dread? Yes, I um, 
I think the first time I really felt that, even though maybe I may not have worded it that way, was when I think I was 12 or 13, we were on the, in the mountains summer with my family. We would always go to the French mountains, the Alps in the summer. And um, we decided one day to go on a hike with friend of mine were, uh, had, had come with our family to our vacation and we decided to take a different loop, a different path and as we were rounding out the path, we ended up near a cliff the only way to go follow the path was to jump from that cliff for what um, probably was a two meter jump to go on the other side of the cliff it was a pretty deep hole in between Uh, of course as a kid you always think the the holes and the distances are larger than what they are but it it clearly was something that i thought this is not going to end well if i miss that jump and and of course the easy thing would have been to turn around of course that would have added several hours of hiking but i remember then thinking this is not good patrick and and yeah that that created a lot of of anxiety for me i don't know if it was death per se but um to this day is something that uh, and later that day i think my father also probably felt death anxiety because he gave me a talk in multiple languages to tell me that this was not smart and he would expect better from me to, to, to do this type of decision. The other thing more recently was when London had some terrorist attacks in 2005. And as a journalist, I went there to freelance and uh, I was stuck in a subway in the days following the terrorist attacks and the subway stopped and all of a sudden the lights turned off. And then I thought, this is, this is bad news again. Um, and I think I was much more aware then because I was an adult in 2005 and it was following the coverage of the terrorist attacks. So it was already very salient. And uh, I understood a bit more the gravity of what could happen rather than that environmental context of being next to a cliff. So as a teenager. Um, and then the third one, if I may, was when I uh, cover something in Mexico. And I, in this case, it was a much more overt feeling of death when I received a death threat there as a journalist covering uh-huh. an, an event. And I went back to my hotel and and uh, there was a note um, telling me that if I were not uh, being careful, my life could be in danger. So I very quickly called my editor and said, you need to get me out of here fast. And this is not going to, to be good. So there I was really, really worried and, and nervous because it was wording per se. So, uh, so those would be three instances that I think... Um, reflect that. I have a few others, but three is enough for now, I think. 
Yeah, so you mentioned um, the terrorist attack in London brought up some death anxiety. And then you, in your bio on the Florida State website, mentioned that you were, you covered uh, some reporting for 9-11. Um, so since you have like these kind of, I guess, experiences with ter terrorist attacks, is there anything like within the public that you can remember or describe of like that seemed to like match what you learned through terror management theory? Well, I, I think in the, in the US specifically, there's always this sense of uniting behind the flag. Mm -hmm. The flag, the flag not being the symbol, but the flag being almost one one voice, and so you could sense that in terms of uh, the post nine eleven context or an immediate post nine eleven context. Of course, we've all read or uh, reviewed all the studies that have talked about President Bush' speech and how that event marked i mean it's foundational a little bit in the literature for tmt those 9-11 because it was so salient at a very high level and then this un unification um behind his intent his action towards the same values the same perceived threats and uh, so you could sense that and i think it's very cultural the Americans every time they feel threatened by an outside force they always unite against that force um, and, and I mean this is also why I think the immigrants have been called aliens it's there's <laughs> even historically mm -hmm. speaking with the mo movie industry and all there is this very strong stigma of an outside force going against the United States. So culturally speaking, it was interesting as a foreigner to see that and, and perceive it in New York. It's understandable, of course, but you don't feel that in, in other countries as predominantly, I think, the terrorist attacks in France recently, whether it was in Paris or Nice or the terrorist attacks in London, mm -hmm. don't give you in a post-traumatic period the same belief and perception of patriotism and, and engagement against the same cause it's it's a different different feel uh, thank you for sharing about that I know it can be um, a tough topic to think and talk about moving on um, COVID is obviously a topic that has affected all of us this past year or so how has your reaction been to COVID? Have you seen it differently through TMT or communication lens? Well, I think um, to go back to your comment about is, is a difficult topic or not. I am, um, I'm okay to, to talk about those things. I think, I think potentially it's actually therapeutic, obviously to, to talk about those things. So mm -hmm. I, I don't, um, I don't mind at all if you have other questions, and I think it's it's actually, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's part of life. So I think mm -hmm. it's I'm I'm fine talking about those things. The COVID for me 
personally has been very difficult because I'm a total germaphobe. <laughs> so you can easily imagine the problems right. there. Um, and I think the other thing is that I'm a very rational individual. Very rarely do I have emotional responses that I don't manage to, to check in. So the, 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 the movement against some policy that have scientifically been documented to act as a solution to the problem is is very uh, unnerving and infuriating to me. And I think from a cross-cultural perspective too, when I see that other countries, whether it's Italy, New Zealand, um, for one that has managed quite well to to go against that that uh, issue and France with the health pass and some other European countries have managed to control to a certain extent and a larger extent the the waves of of the virus whereas in the US it's a, a politicized question uh, just to me make me shake my head every day so today I'm, I think the, the context of COVID for me is, is more what can I do from a persuasive communication perspective to make sure that people understand that it's no it's not a political question it's a health question yes health is now tied to politics this is a health crisis and and your health does not have a political color. Mm-hmm. So you have certain beliefs that makes you conservative or, or liberal. Yes, okay. But in this case, it's, it's a much easier solution. And I think what's interesting here is that after 9-11, for instance, to go back to that, there was this notion of patriotism mm-hmm. and and almost collectivism that is very much what the U.S. is not. The U.S. is not a collectivistic country. It's a very individualistic country. Today, you cannot see COVID. This is not something visual. We don't know where it is. We can't really identify it. But we have much more larger body of evidence than what the terrorists uh, were at the time. And yet we have a higher level of individualism against that threat, that external threat. So it's an interesting set of dynamics is that we know the threat, we have large body of evidence from multiple nations and cultures and studies to document that threat. Other countries have shown the way on how to tackle successfully that threat. And yet, despite calls within the US by some public officials, we are not seeing the same level of collectivism uh, and there is no unity against that. It's, it's a divided landscape against the problem. So it's a, it's a fascinating 
dynamic as a scholar, uh, infuriating as a citizen uh, for me. Great. Um, moving on, we just wanted to um, ask you about your life in Florida. Is there anything like fun you like to do when you're not working or anything that you miss from France or Europe in general since living here? Well, I, when I'm not working, I like to bike. I'm a cyclist. I love endurance sport. I told you earlier that uh, I used to run marathon. I, I used to do Ironman triathlons, and wow. now I enjoy cycling. So when I have free time, or when I can find and create free time, I usually take my bike and and, and bike around. We have here not far from my um, town here a natural reserve that is about um, 30 miles away so i bike there just enjoy the serenity and peacefulness of that landscape and uh, try to do that what i miss a lot from france and europe as a whole is a slower pace of life mm -hmm. is the mountains um, the biggest mountain here in florida is a hundred meter bump uh, that could be a, a bridge so not something that would, would really qualify right and uh, yeah I mean obviously I miss my family mm -hmm. I haven't seen them in over a couple of years now but um, yeah it's the, the mountains is something that I miss a lot and um, Florida is not the best place for that right I was actually just in France over a month ago, so I already miss it there. So I couldn't imagine how it is for you as well. Yes, do not tease me, please. That could end <laughs> up in, in, a, in, a, in a problematic discussion, but I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's obviously, it's uh, Americans have always loved France. Mm -hmm. It's an, an entire different discussion there, but um, yeah, the, the landscape is certainly gorgeous um, Very, in that yeah. small country. All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us today, Patrick. Um, it looks like that we are just about a time right now, but um, if you have any last things that you want to share to the people out there listening to the podcast, this is your chance to do so. Well, thanks for having me. That was uh, exciting. I'm glad that I was part of your guests. Very honored. And for the listeners, I think they're, they're lucky to have a podcast like this with uh, that lab uh, and headed by you and, and the mentorship of, of Lindsay. I think that's a fantastic initiative and, and I'll support it as best as I can. Thank you. Well, thank you again for coming on and thank you all for listening. And we hope to have you back listening during the next episode. Have a good rest of your week, everybody. Bye.